So probably can't tell by looking at me, but I'm a huge fan of pies. Now, I know it's not a competition, but I really do like pies. Uh, in fact, in fact, when, when Krista is gone uh, and, and I have to fend for myself, I go, to the, I go to the freezer section at Walmart and I get those little uh, meat pies. I call them chicken pot pies, and even though they have beef and stuff inside of them, I still call them chicken pot pies, not pot pies, but pot pies. Anyways, that's what I call them. You can call them whatever. Uh, in England... They call them umble pies, without the H, umble pie. And I, I thought, well, what does that mean? That actually comes from the Latin, which means loins. And so what it is, it's like a meat, a venison meat pie. And I thought, that, that sounds actually really delicious. And apparently, uh, this was eaten by the peasants and the commoners, and when the upper class wanted to make fun of somebody who was of lower class, they did this real funny thing. You ready for it? They added an H to the humble pie and said, looks like somebody ate humble pie this morning. They're hilarious, those upper-class English people. Um, real stitch. Anyways, that phrase eventually began to mean lower food, lower kind of food, and it spoke of somebody who uh, would eat something that was of lesser quality and it became a, a phrase to mean somebody who was forced to be humiliated. Like it was a humiliation to eat this lower food. And so if you eat humble pie, you are humiliated. Now, this phrase is not in the Bible, so I am perfectly okay taking this phrase and rebranding it because this, this morning we're going to look at humility, and humility is good. Pie is good as well. So humble pie should be awesome. And humble pie is something that we should be eating a lot of as believers. This is, we should be on a regular diet of humility and, and having this humility. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the benefits, the three benefits of eating humble pie. We're going to be in Proverbs 15. There's, there's three benefits here in Proverbs 15. We're going to be in verses 25 through 33. A lot of this stuff we've already talked about, so that's why we're going to kind of move kind of fast through some of these, through some of these concepts. But really the first benefit we're going to see in verses 25 through 27, that the first benefit of eating humble pie is biblical morality. When, when we are humble and we see ourselves correctly, we see God correctly, we see his word correctly, there is this sense of, of seeing truth and seeing morality, seeing uh, ethical situations with, with biblical clarity, and there's this bold doggedness to that. And so what you're going to see is you're going to see a strong biblical morality. The second benefit of eating humble pie is biblical speech. It's going to affect the way you talk. It's going to affect the way you answer. It's going to affect the way that you communicate, how you respond. We're going to see that in verses 28 through 29. And then from 30 to the end of the chapter, we're going to see that another benefit of eating humble pie is biblical listening. And what you're going to see what that means. That means being teachable, that we're going to listen to the reproofs of God's word and of godly people. We're not going to neglect God's word and the discipline. We're going to let ourselves be taught. We're, going to, we're not going to start with the presupposition, I am incredible and do not need to work on myself. We're going to start from a different position I know nothing, and I need to be taught by God. 
Those are the three benefits of eating humble pie. So let's start this morning looking at this first one. Of The first benefit of eating humble pie is biblical morality. And notice how Solomon starts off in verse 25. He says, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. It's interesting that in this section from 25 to 33, there's this discussion of humility, and it is contrasted with pride. It's contrasted with arrogance. And what's interesting about the definition for the word humility, it means to to be brought low, not in this unbiblical, unhealthy self-abasement. It's coming from an understanding of who God is. When I see God and I see his character, I see his will, I see his word, I see his holiness, I, I see all of his attributes, and then I look at myself, honestly, I realize what I'm not. I realize my complete and utter dependence upon him, how I need him every single second, how I am spiritually destitute, that anything good that's happening in my life is a product of his work, of his spirit upon my heart. So my adequacy is not from myself, but from him. And as I look at Jesus Christ, and I look what he did on the cross for me, and I think of the spirit and, and, declare, and, and the imputation of Christ's righteousness, I realize, man, I am really nothing. The only thing I've contributed to my life as a Christian is the need for a savior, and the constant need for help going on throughout my entire life. And so when you get this view, you are willing to bow down, you're willing to submit, you're willing to bring yourself low in humble submission to him, right? You're not standing tall on your own accomplishments, you are falling down and worshiping him. You'll be brought low. What's interesting here in verse 25 is notice how the Lord is against the proud, right? Those people that are not eating humble pie. And notice that it says the Lord will tear down. That's an interesting image, especially when you consider the definition of humility is to be low, that one is voluntarily bowing down, getting low. Notice that this one will also be brought low. His stuff will be brought low. The question and the issue is, who's the one causing you to go low? Is it, is it your own self, your own humility, right, that that's comes from God's word and seeing God, it's a voluntary thing, or will God force you down? That's the image here, as God is opposed to those who are proud. And the word house here is an interesting one. We've seen this word before, and in the book of Proverbs before, house meant someone's family, their household. Here, I think it refers to their property, their property will be torn down as a sign of judgment. So the sense is God is, is, is judging the proud. And then he uses the word proud. Uh, I think there's a lot of overlap between the word proud or pride and arrogance. There may be one minor nuance that I think might be helpful in this verse. Normally, pr- pride is... When I point to something, look at what I've done, look at what I have, look at a quality trait I have. And it's pointing to something. It's pointing to something and saying, look at this accomplishment, that means I'm great. Right? So that's the idea. Look at this, this proves, this set of lists proves I'm awesome. Arrogance doesn't need a reason. It just says I'm awesome. 
okay? So that's the difference, right? Pride looks at an accomplishment. Arrogance is just this self-delusion of puffing up. So that's important in this, in this parallelism because here it's the house of the proud. They're doing something, and as they're doing something, it's, it's basis for them to, to puff themselves up. So the Lord is against this person. But notice, notice who he's for. It's an interesting contrast. But he establishes the border or the boundary of the widow. You'll have to forgive me this morning, but really to understand what's being talked about here, you kind of have to understand a little bit of ancient uh, land-owning laws and boundary laws. I know that's on all of our high priorities to learn. But in the ancient world, when you owned a piece of property, you would set up a whole bunch of boundary rocks on the corners of your boundary and along your boundary, and that would signify this is the edge of my property, and that's the boundary of somebody else. But they were rocks. And one of the things that happened quite often was people would move those rocks, right? Magically, the rock moves, and one neighbor gets more land, the other neighbor gets less land. And so a lot of ancient judicial decisions were based off of examining where rocks were placed. And is this the right place where a rock goes? And, and there would be people who would establish rock piles and get bigger rocks and put bigger rocks there. They were strong enough to put rocks there. So here, you get this idea that here's this widow. The connotation of a widow here is someone who does not have strength, does not have a lot of power, doesn't have a lot. They're kind of destitute. So you have this destitute person, and their boundaries are being established by the Lord. The Lord is actively the one who's establishing and putting big rocks there. The image here that that you're supposed to walk away with is the Lord is against the proud, and he is for the humble. That's the sense. He's for the humble. Now notice the next verse. It says, evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. Now, I do see a connection here in verse 26 and verse 27 to verse 25. It seems like there's like this mini drama that happens in these verses of this arrogant person, this proud person who thinks, I can do evil things. I can do these evil plans, maybe even with some of these boundary rocks. I can, I can push this rock an inch a day. And no one will know that it's being pushed an inch a day. No one will know. There's even an implication in the next verse that he might even bribe officials for them to say, no, this rock is officially supposed to be here. So he steals land from people by moving these boundary rocks. And so it almost implies this arrogant person who's also, by the way, a wicked person who's a fool. This person who's wicked comes up with evil plans to hurt someone else, to steal something that God has given to someone else. And notice that this thing, this type of theft, any type of plan that someone devises that goes against God's word or God's character, God hates. He hates these things. These things are sinful. We might, we might chuckle at somebody moving a rock an inch and go, what's the harm in moving a rock an inch? Is somebody really going to notice that it's moved an inch? Of course, the Lord will. And that's evil. That's wrong. That's sinful. He hates this. 
The word abomination, we've seen this numerous times. It means to loathe, to, dis- to extremely distaste. And so notice the opposite of this. The opposite is pleasant words are pure. And, and it kind of implies the idea of somebody who makes good plans, right? So there's evil plans, which are an abomination. The, the idea is good, pleasant plans are a delight to the Lord, and they're pure, and they're right, and they're things that the Lord accepts. It is interesting, though, that he uses the word pleasant words, beautiful words, attractive words, and we would say, what are attractive words? Well, attractive words would be those words that come from a heart that's under the control of the Holy Spirit, that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's words that are correct according to God's word. They're words that are beautiful and attractive to him that he would find acceptable. They would probably also be words that are acceptable to other people as well. We, I've met plenty of people who said the right kind of thing with the wrong attitude at the wrong time. And those words are not attractive, right? That's like getting a meal on the trash can lid. You go, I really like that food, bad presentation guy. Uh, so attractiveness here would also be that discernment of to say the right thing at the right time with the right motivation in the right way, okay? That, that type of thing is, is pure to the Lord. That's pleasant to the Lord. And where do these words come from? These words come from a heart that is absorbed with the word. It's absorbed with Jesus Christ. It's under the control of the Holy Spirit. These words are, are, are coming out from his soul, and, and it's the sense of he knows what is right because he sees God's word, and he says these words because they're in accordance to God and his word. And therefore, God looks at these words and says, these are beautiful words. They are pure. By the way, I couldn't help but think when I thought of this, of the gospel of that that passage where it says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news and thinking about uh, an attractive message and think back to the time when you heard the gospel, that beautiful, attractive message that you are a sinner and you are incapable of saving yourself, but God, out of his great love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and die on the cross for our sins, to be buried and rose again, and that when you place your faith solely on Jesus, you can have eternal life. How, how incredible and attractive and beautiful are those words then and they are now. And just think about how, how, how pure those words are and how beautiful those words are. And, and I think about the church and, and as we talk about ministries and we make plans on how to say words of Scripture and teach people and disciple people, those plans are pleasing to the Lord because they are in accordance with his word. The opposite are sinful and evil. Now, the idea is, is that these plans are to maybe steal the property from the widow. Because notice what it says next. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house, and he who hates bribes will live. Notice, once again, this idea of he who hates bribes will live. This comes from a deep sense of right and wrong. But also, if you are gaining resources, money, clout, through greedy, ill-gotten means, not only does God hate that, that's wrong, it's morally wrong, you need to stop and you need to repent, but also there's a ramification on the rest of your family. There's a ramification on your future. 
This brings trouble. This causes a whole wagon full of trouble. No sin is isolated to just me. When I sin, it does ripple and affect others. When you sin, it's not just you sinning and you being affected by your sin. It has a ripple effect to others. This sin has significant ripple effects. And he brings trouble on his own house. He, he, he's, putting, he's putting the lives and his property in jeopardy because he's willing to do something illegal. He's willing to do something that's not founded. But notice the other one. It says, but he who hates, that's a really strong word, hates. He hates bribes, will live. And the question is, why does this one hate bribes? I thought about this this week. Why would, why would we hate bribes? And my first thought was, well, because I don't want to pollute justice. And I thought, well, there's got to be a better answer than I just don't want to pollute justice, right? I mean, there's got to be a better answer to that, right? That just seems like a very surface-level answer. And as I thought about this idea of bribes and what bribes do, essentially what bribes do is when you pay somebody money to, to overlook an offense, to let something go so that more illegal activity can happen, this, this abortion of justice, I, I go, it's just not just. And then I thought, well, where do I get my sense of justice from? I get it from God. And as I think about God and I think about his character, I think about his word, I think about people who are hurt by these particular schemes and evil plans. Then as I start to look back at these bribes, I realize I should hate bribes because it goes against the nature of God. I should hate bribes because it hurts people. Yes, it does pervert justice. But ultimately, my sense of justice is from God, and it is, it is an offense against him. But notice this one, he hates it. That's a, that's a, that's a moral thing, right? He, he morally abhors the, this, this, this giving of money to overlook. So when, when somebody's humble, they're not proud, right? The proud person thinks he can get away with this. A humble person says, I hate that. So notice that a humble person here, a person who has a regular diet of humble pie, is one who has strong biblical morality. He's one who looks at God and he looks at the word and and then he looks at his own life and he tries to match his life to God's word. There's this strong sense of what is right and what is wrong. Now there's more. Notice in, in the next verse, in verse 28, that if you have a steady diet of humble pie, the next benefit will be that you will have biblical speech. Notice, notice the next phrase. It says, the heart of the righteous ponder how to answer. It's kind of interesting. So here you have an, a righteous person, and, and the heart, remember, that's the immaterial part. That's, the, that's your personality. That's the real you on the inside, right? So a righteous person on the inside, when he makes decisions and as he thinks through things, notice he uses the he, he ponders. This word for ponder really means to grunt. Um, and and the, the idea is, have you ever been thinking about something or saying something to someone and a good point was made and they go, huh, that, huh, that's, that's what this word signifies, that, huh, that's interesting. You, you almost even get the, the sense of somebody going like this to their chin, huh, right, that grunt, 
It speaks of filling one's mind with information and, and mulling it over and over and over again. But it's strenuous. And so, it, so there is this guttural sound of, huh. So a righteous person seriously considers. Ponders in the English is kind of a, a weaker word. Uh, when I think of somebody pondering, I think of somebody just casually thinking about something, right? I was pondering this the other day. You, were, you were, really weren't seriously, systematically thinking, meditating on. This word is the word for meditating. It is a serious brain labor. And so they are meditating on what? On how to answer. So a righteous person, when he gets into a situation where he has to say something or act, what is he doing? He is seriously considering how he should respond What's the right thing to do? He doesn't just react. He stops and he thinks and he thinks hard. The question is, what is he thinking about? Where does he go to think? Now, I know the the author is Solomon, and we know that his dad wrote another psalm that has to do with meditating. So I would like to cross-reference. So let's go to the book of Psalms, and we'll go to the very first psalm. I believe Solomon's dad wrote this. And we'll just start in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he, now notice this, he meditates day and night. So think of this. Here, David tells us, a man who is happy, satisfied, joyful, it starts off with a negation. How happy is the man who does not do this? Now, that's really striking, by the way. We don't really necessarily talk like this. We don't, this isn't normal communication, right? You want to be happy? Don't do this. Normally, we'd say, you want to do this. It's a positive statement. He starts with a negative. You don't want to do this. Why? Because the implication is, we think we'll be happy if we listen to the advice of the wicked man. Or, or if we walk and we, we, we stand in, in the lifestyle of sinners. Or if we have the same type of judgment as scoffers. We think we'll be happy if we're just in the in crowd. And David is saying, you are not happy if you go along with these people. When are you how, how is a man happy and satisfied in his soul? Notice verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So happiness comes from delighting in the word of God. And as he delights in the word of God, guess what he thinks about? He thinks about the thing he loves. And notice he says, and in his law, he meditates day and night. He is constantly thinking about the word. Because he loves the word. So we would ask, what would a righteous man be meditating on? Uh, the, the, the word. What else would he be thinking about? 
He'd be thinking about the word. He'd be taking these things seriously. He'd be going, how does this apply to my life? And how should I respond? And in a situation, he's looking at numerous passages that deal with that particular thing, gleaning principles. And he's, he's thinking, how would God be honored if I do this? And would God be honored if I do this? And is this the right course? Or is this not the right course? It's a, it's a mind full of questions of how, what's the right way to respond That, that's what happens when you start eating humble pie. You get a slow tongue, right? My mom, I'm going to be seeing my grandmother, uh, my mom's mom in, in Wyoming. Uh, pretty excited about that. She's Pennsylvania Dutch. Uh, that probably means very little to any of you. But to me, that just means there's going to be a lot of good food there. And uh, Pennsylvania Dutch, they have this particular pie called shoe fly pie. And it's basically just molasses, it's just molasses. And when you eat it, your tongue gets thick. Gums up. That's what, that's what humble pie does to a righteous person. It slows your tongue to react. You go, I need to think about it before I say something. A person that does not eat humble pie, notice what they do. Right in verse 28 of Proverbs 15, it says, But the mouth of the wicked pours out. Just think of that image of pouring out. It's like, a, like, like if you're taking a cup and it's got water inside and you pour it out, right? It just, it's all coming out. He pours out evil things. So one thinks, how should I respond? And the other one, it doesn't appear that they're thinking, how should I respond? Or, or it's probably better this way. They're not meditating on what would be honoring to God. They are pondering everything else. I, I don't want you to read this and go, Wicked people are stupid and they don't think. That's not what's being said. They don't think how the righteous people think. Righteous people want to honor and glorify God with their lives and their reactions and how they speak. The wicked person does not think that way. And they are willing to spew out anything and everything that's opposite of God and of his word. As a result, you get then verse 29, which says, The Lord is far from the wicked. This is not in distance. Don't read this and go, oh, God is no longer omnipresent when it comes to a wicked person. It's not like he plays stranger danger when he sees somebody who's not saved and goes, I can't be around them. I got to run away. No, we know that God is everywhere at all times and can exhibit the fullness of all of his power at all places at all times without ever getting tired and have his full consciousness in every place at all times. It's mind-boggling to think of that. So this is not speaking of his presence, of, his phys- of, of this physical presence that he's not aware of what's going on. Rather, this is a relational statement, right? He is relationally distanced from the wicked. They don't have the right kind of relationship. So the wicked is far from him. There's, there's, there's a distance in their relationship. They don't have a relationship. Or they have the wrong kind of relationship. That might be better. But notice what he says. He says, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And here, I think when it says that he hears the prayers of the righteous, once again, I don't want you to think that if a wicked person prays, God just puts his fingers in his ears and starts yelling, I'm not listening to you. As if God doesn't know the content of their heart or of their prayer. That, that's not the case. What this means is, is that he has a special relationship with the righteous. And he pays attention to the prayers of the righteous. And when the righteous person prays, 
He has a vested interest in a righteous person. I was thinking about it. Uh, I think about my kids. We're going on a road trip. We're going to take my kids to Legoland. They like Legos. I'm really looking forward to it. But if another kid came up and said, hey, can I go to Legoland? I'd say, go ask your parents. I knew what they asked. I know their heart. I, I, I have nothing against taking every kid in the world to Legoland. But I'm paying special attention to when my kids ask, can we go to Legoland? Right? I have a vested interest in them. I'm going to pay attention to those which are mine. That's what I see here. I see that there's this relationship between the righteous and the Lord. And so when the righteous person prays, the Lord pays attention to a righteous person when they pray because they are his. Because there's a relationship there. By the way, I would say this. If you are humble and you think about the things you're about ready to say, if you are humble, you also are going to be a person of prayer. I have often seen, even in my own life, but as a general rule, I've always seen the greatest obstacle to prayer life, to my prayer life, of my arrogance and of my pride, thinking I can do this without his help, without asking for his help in situations without going to him, or, or foolishly thinking that only certain problems are big enough to go before him, and he doesn't care about little problems, like I can be some great arbitrator of what problem I bring before the Lord. Pride stops us from going to the Lord because pride and arrogance says, I don't need you. I don't need your help. So it is truly only the humble people that realize, I need the Lord. I need him. They're the ones that are praying. And they're the ones that are passionately crying out saying, I really need you. That, that, that's, that's the type of speech pattern of somebody who eats humble pie. Now there's, there's one more thing that happens. You, you get better hearing when, when you eat humble pie. There's going to be biblical listening. Notice what it says next. It says, bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bones. It's kind of an interesting proverb here. The idea of bright eyes is somebody who has a sparkle in their eye. That's the phrase, sparkle, glint. And it most likely refers to a messenger who's bringing a good news, who has a joyful sparkle in his eye, and when he... When, he, when you see somebody who's a messenger of good news and you have that sparkle, you see that sparkle in their eye, you are gladdened and have joy because you know that good news is about ready to come. And then the next part, which I think is, is synthetic here, which is just adding to the thought, it's good news puts fat on the bones. And what I think this means is that it's refreshing and it's satisfying. So good news brings joy it brings refreshment, it brings healing, it brings satisfaction. That's what good news does. I, I, uh, Teresa will text me throughout the week, and she'll just text me Bible verses. And I, I have to apologize to her. I don't always re- respond to her because a lot of times when she texts me, I'm in the middle of talking to someone else. But she, she just texts me Bible verses. And there, there's been 
several times where I've been in a kind of in a quandary of what, what should I do in this situation? How should I respond to people? Uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's this, uh, you know, I'm not at ease with something that's going on. And she'll text me a Bible verse. She doesn't know what's going on in my life. And the Bible verse is just a, a Bible verse about God's greatness and his promises and his love. And it's always really encouraging to see that, just to see the word. She doesn't know what's going on. I, I, didn't, I didn't call her and say, hey, Teresa, could you pray for this? She just sends it. And I thought, that, that's exactly, that's exactly what, uh, what it's like. So when I see on my phone Teresa texts, I don't go, oh, man. I, I go, oh, I wonder what verse, I wonder what verse uh, she's going to text me. And, and, and so there's this idea of joy when I see that. Uh, numerous people, you've come up to me and you, you've shared some great spiritual victory in your life. And there's a glean or... or uh, Think back when you first heard the gospel and the person that told you the gospel and you think about that message the first time you heard it and how beautiful it was and how satisfying it was. And Think about when you read God's word or somebody tells you a wonderful promise from God's word, how that, how that brings joy. So humble pie helps you listen. Then notice what it says in verse 31. He who listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. So the idea is, not only will you be a better listener, and and by the way, being a better listener here is the idea of taking God's word seriously, wanting to apply it to your life and live it out. That's, That's what listening here implies. And reproof has the idea that there's something in your life that needs to be removed, some sinful, some bad perspective, something that's wrong, that's that's stopping you from moving forward to the Lord. The the, the humble person hears that, listens to that, accepts that, and knows what will happen. He'll then go around people who are wise, who are willing to give him reproof. So a humble person is a person who goes, yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I need a lot of help. I need a lot of rebuke in my life. Have you, I'm a terrible sinner. I need that. And they're willing to listen to God's word and to people who have spent time in God's word. They become a better listener. Oh, but notice verse 32. He who neglects discipline despises himself, literally hates himself. Uh, anyone who would, who would open up God's word, say, nah, I don't need to listen to that. Or anytime somebody would give the advice from God's word, which is sound biblical counsel, and they go, Nah, not listening to that. Ultimately, that's self-hatred because they are rejecting the words of life. They're rejecting the words that will lead them to the Lord. And the ultimate consequence will be what? Hell. And if you willfully neglect the words of God and say, this is where I'm going to end up, how else do you explain that than self-hatred? There's no other term. But... He who listens to reproof acquires understanding. He, he, he acquires understanding about God. He understands acquire, uh, about God's word. Lastly, notice in verse 33, it says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. That's incredible, isn't it? That when I have this incredible respect for God and I take him seriously, that attitude teaches me wisdom. It provides me the way of wisdom. And notice this. Notice how he ends this. This is incredible. Before honor comes humility. Before one is honored, 
before one is, is uh, honored by God or honored in any place, there will be humility. So notice how this starts in verse 25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Notice how he ends this section, before honor comes humility. Humility is the key, right? Eating humble pie. Pie is great. Humility is great. Humble pie should be awesome. But the question is, how do we eat humble pie, right? Okay, it makes sense that we see that these are the benefits of eating humble pie, but how do we get to that place where we begin to develop humility? I don't have a lot of time to talk about the subject. The Bible speaks about this at at length. But let me just give you a couple pieces of advice here from from God's word. I I think the first starting point is starting with the character and attributes of God. Our minds should be thrilled, should be filled, should be seeking to know God, to know him and to know his ways. We know that from his word. So we spend time in his word thinking about him. And not just the things that we like to think about, but thinking about all that he is. You must remember that when we talk about the attributes of God, his love, his holiness, his justice, his wrath, all of that, you must realize that God is perfect. He is all of those things perfectly all the time. And our mind, the only way that we can think about him is we have to kind of separate those attributes out and examine them individually and then kind of try to put them back together. But that's not how God is. God is all of his attributes together. In fact, one could look at his love through the lens of his wrath, through his holiness, through his sovereignty, and so on. You could look at his wrath through the lens of all the other attributes. He is all of his attributes perfectly. He never grows in those. Like, he doesn't have to learn how to become more loving. And any action that he does and any attribute that he has, you never say, okay, God, you need to tamp that down a little bit. That's an inappropriate way of exhibiting that attribute. He's perfect. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. And you and I need to spend serious time thinking of those attributes deeply. And the question would be, how do I know if I'm thinking deeply? Have you ever had a time when you're thinking about God where you go, huh? If you haven't had a huh when thinking about God, then probably you're not thinking deep enough about God. There's another thing that I think we need to to realize is we need to understand our own spiritual plight. We need to understand ourselves. Jesus said in Matthew 5.3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is a, a powerful thing for us to think about. That, that we don't come rich in spirit. We don't come with all of these riches and all of these good things that we've done. We come with nothing. We come with rags. I, I'm bringing nothing to the table. This is all him. I think about that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God. So even the good things that I do are not necessarily because I'm awesome, but because it's God's spirit working through me and his word working through me. I I need to understand that I I need him, and I'm, I'm desperately, desperately dependent upon him. And so then as I begin to think about him and how great he is, and I begin to think of myself, of I'm not that great, the 
And, and then as I began to then observe Jesus and think about Jesus and watch the life of Jesus and see how Jesus responded, I then began to see humility. In fact, turn with me to the book of Philippians chapter 2. We'll end here in Philippians chapter 2. This is a serious consideration. I see myself. I see the attributes of God. I I see what's really happening. The good things are my adequacy comes from God. But notice just in Philippians 2.1, he says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty, notice this word, conceit. You see that? Don't act proud. Do not do anything from pride. He specifically says it. But with, notice this, humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. How do we get there? Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude. What attitude? The attitude he just said. Do all things with humility. Do all things as looking at the other person as being more important than yourself. This attitude. Have this attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the example of humility is Jesus. So what did Jesus do? Although he existed in the form of God, being God, that's what he's saying, he did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. I mean, he didn't, because he was God, he wasn't robbing God of his glory. But he emptied himself, namely leaving heaven, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Imagine this, the creator God leaves heaven and all of his privilege and adds on humanity to become man, to come to earth, To do what? To be made in the likeness of men, to be found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is the ultimate example of humility. And that is the level of humility that you and I are to have. And when I think of the gospel, it should be a giant slice. Giant slice with ice cream, right out of the oven, still sticks on the plate that you got to lick the rest of the plate, humble pie. And I would say, friends, eat two or three pies in one sitting. Don't stop eating. Continue to look to the cross and continue to contemplate. This is the only pie I know of, by the way, that you can eat as much as you want and you'll never be full, and you don't gain a pound. It's awesome. And I would say we, as believers who love the Lord Jesus Christ, should eat humble pie as often as we can. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray.